Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is uh, a three-peat. I think, I, I think Mastin is my first three-peat. Uh, he's back on the show for our third time, and Mastin Kip is a number one best-selling author, speaker, and creator of functional life coaching for people who are seeking rapid transformation in their lives. He has been featured on the Emmy Awards show, uh, Super Soul Sunday, which is run by Oprah, and recognized as a thought leader for the next generation by Oprah Winfrey. He's built a highly successful international personal development company that helps create, uh, helps people create rapid change, connect to who they really are, and uh, how to live their lives with passion and purpose, which so many of us are seeking. But here's the thing. Outside of all of his accolades, outside of everything that Mastin has done, which is absolutely incredible, he's done some amazing things uh, in his life thus far, we aren't going to talk about uh, any of the things that are on his resume. Uh, we actually dive into some very interesting conversations that I wasn't expecting us to dig into. So we talk about the origins of misogyny, which, um, you know, it's kind of a heated topic. And I think I was resistant in the beginning to even discussing that topic as most people probably are but it was interesting because Mastin uh, brings it into a religious and and um, theological uh, conversation um, so you might disagree with some of the stuff that we talk about on this show today uh, you might have something to add to it because it's a little controversial it's a little edgy uh, it's sort of outside of the norm of what we what we normally get into but we talk about the origins of misogyny we talk about trauma and how trauma informs uh, our decisions and our lives, how, uh, how those things, how we can deal with and, and help uh, people in our lives that have trauma. And then towards the end, we actually get into psychedelics a little bit. And we talk about how uh, different psychedelics can potentially uh, support the healing through trauma, through depression, through anxiety. And we talk about a few different um, comp uh, components like um, psilocybin, which are mushrooms. We talk about ayahuasca. Uh, Mastin, Mastin actually shares a few of his own experiences that he hasn't actually shared on any other podcast interview, which is interesting. So this is a very rich podcast with lots of in really interesting information. Uh, again, some of it might be controversial and you might not agree with some of it. You might totally agree with other parts. But um, it's a very interesting conversation nonetheless. So make sure you man it forward, share with just one person. For the guys that are out there, don't forget to head on over to Facebook. We've got some amazing conversations happening in the Man Talks community. And uh, don't forget to sign up for one of the men's weekends, our, our one that uh, just happened over this past weekend. Uh, it was absolutely incredible. It was totally sold out. We have a, a wait list for our next few weekends. Uh, we have another weekend coming up in August on the West Coast, and we have another weekend coming up on the East Coast, probably uh, in in September. We're just confirming the dates for that. So if you're interested in joining us for one of the men's works week men's work weekends that I lead, uh, definitely head on over and sign up now as the spots are filling up quickly. So. That's it for the announcements, and uh, without any further delay, please enjoy this conversation and welcome Mastin Kip. What's up, Connor? Stoked to be here, man. It is so good to have you. You know, I feel like we're in a good routine. I feel like every time <laughs> you come to New York, she's coming to my place. Yeah, we'll hang out. We'll have we'll have uh, mushroom coffee in, 
and and just chat on the show. In. Done and done. I love this. And if I'm ever down in North Carolina. Yeah. Come on down. <laughs> I'll just I'll pop by. That's right. Always have a bed to sleep on, man, for sure. Because I would love to meet Jenna. Yeah, she's incredible. And I know she'd love to meet you too. She sounds she sounds amazing. Tell us a tell us a fun fact about Jenna. What do you what do you love about her? Oh what, what okay. Well, I think Jenna is probably without a doubt the most empathetic person I've ever met. Hmm. The most loving person I've ever met. And she has this uncanny ability to like discover root cause issues well beyond what I can do. Hmm. And I thought I was good at root cause stuff. But she's like a forensic investigator on things. And it's incredible. Like, like no stone le- is left unturned. You know, the female brain is wired for diffused awareness. And she has like incredible like recall of like the smallest details, whether it's like in our relationship where she, I'm like, no, that's not what happened. She's like, actually, it is what happened because it was May 1st and you were staying on the side of, you know, Sunset and Vine and you were wearing this and this and this. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you win. Yeah. And I try to like do that to her and I'm like, well, you were doing that. She's like, no, I wasn't wearing, I don't even have that in my wardrobe, Mastin or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I lose that, uh, which is fine. But then like in business, coaching, observing people, you know, um, she is, she is just a, a incredible. Uh, at discovering those things. So yeah, she's amazing. She amazes me all the time. That's awesome. Uh, I wanted to back the train up just before we move on. This has maybe not too much to do with what we're going to talk about on the show, but you mentioned diffused awareness and you said yeah. the female brain is wired for diffused awareness. Yes. And I have good context for that, but I don't know if my listeners do. So I'd love for you to just expand on that just a, just a hair. Sure, no problem. Could. So it's not misogynistic. And it's not some 1950s thing, yeah. just science. So, the, you know, Dr. <laughs> Luann Brzezenden wrote a couple books, The Male and the Female Brain. And basically, I mean, I'll oversimplify it. Women were the gatherers. And so they had to pay attention to all the little details. And they had to be able to describe in very specific details where the, where the berry was and what color it was and what time of season it was. And if I don't make it back, here's how you get back. And all these specific details uh, for the gathering. Men primarily were the hunters. And we were focused primarily on one thing, like kill that one buffalo and then take it out. And so we've evolved over a very long period of time to for men to be really good at one thing and for women to be able to pay attention to lots of things. So if there's mm-hmm. one gender who can truly multitask based on their anatomy, it's definitely women. And that's why, you know, a woman can be like closing a million dollars a year on her business, raising a kid, you know, running the family, balancing everything, keeping everything in check. And then like the guy can't even bring home the right type of milk or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, I didn't. I wanted the carrageenan free almond milk or whatever. You know, you what's know? funny is that actually happened with Vietna and I the other day. She was like, we need more almond milk. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And so I went across the street, got almond milk and came back. And she's like, somehow you got vanilla almond milk. And I was like, <laughs> Shit, are you serious? Like, yeah. how the hell did I do I that? Know. But they looked, you know, I just, and that's just, I totally missed it. I just totally yeah. missed it. I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because in some ways what you're talking about is our origins as human beings and how our origins have evolved us in very specific ways. And I think a lot of the work that you do is around how our personal, maybe not our our evolutionary origin stories, but how our personal origin stories actually have a huge impact on who we are today. And that's I know- That's actually really well put. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. That's actually, I'm actually going, I'm agreeing with you and I'm having a, a little bit of an aha moment because I've never thought about it that way, mm. but it's true. Yeah. Why is Batman Batman? Why is the Joker Joker? Yeah. It's all about developmental trauma. 
That, <laughs> it's, I love that. It's so true, though. It's so true, right? It's like what's made Batman who he is was trauma. That's right. It was actually developmental trauma. So, um, I mean, I've always been fascinated with origin stories. And I think when I work with people, that's that's just like some, some of the places that I usually go is like, tell me about your origin story. And, and sometimes I'll even ask that question of like, tell me the origin story of that belief. And, you know, I just recently watched your TED Talk. Because you just did a, a recent TED Talk, yeah? Yeah, at uh, Wake Forest University, which brought up all my own developmental stuff. So yes. it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> and, it was, and it was awesome, but I, I liked it. And it, it was called the uh, United... Oh, uh, yeah. So the talk was called The United States of Differentiation. And the idea behind the talk was trying to scientifically and functionally explain why uh, emotional trauma is the root cause, not the justification of, but the root cause of the majority of the social economic problems that we're having today, whether it's racism, red states, blue states, Republicans, Democrats, whatever, right? Like what's really going on underneath all that is the developmental and emotional trauma. And um, yeah, it was, it was a 21 minute talk. I had to like jam a lot in there, yeah. make it really simple to understand. And uh, it was very stressful, but awesome to be able to do. And the response has been really good too, which is cool. Yeah. TED talks are generally a little stressful. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I've, not done one for 10 years because I had nothing to say. I didn't want to just do one because I had to do one for my career or something. That makes no sense. But I had something to say. But the funny part is I'm a college dropout. I left college to pursue my dream job. And, you know, my father, uh, scientist, PhD, mom, master's. Um, and so I dropped out of college and the talk's out of college. Okay. So I'm like, okay, am I enough? And then it's on mental health issues. Right. I don't have anything after my name except for like a Hatha yoga certification. And you usually have to have the alphabet after your name to talk about this type of stuff. Yeah. And I was like, whatever. So I just decided, you know, I'm going to do it. And the thing that I was able to contextualize everything with was I may not have the PhD after my name or the MD, but I have over 10,000 hours with real human beings in the field. And if the stuff that I'm talking about doesn't work, I go out of business, you know, so I'm not against clinical research, but you know, if you have a you know IRB and you get you know clinical research and you get funding for that in a grant, you know there's no stress to make it functional in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I've had to live with that every day. So what I'm saying has to work, otherwise I don't live. I can't feed myself, right? Yeah. So I feel like that there's a level of credibility in that that maybe even some scientists can't say. You know, yeah. it's a, it's applicable in the field. Yeah, I, I mean, I like that. I think that there's a lot of people out there, and I f- I feel like more and more are there's parts of our cultures that are shifting back towards this more grounded sense of credibility in the, in the people who are actually on the ground, like the sort of like, you're, you're like the workforce of healing trauma, right? You're like the one that's like, okay, you're in the lab, you're doing the research. I appreciate all the research that you're doing and I'm helping the people with trauma heal through it real time. Here's what I'm learning. That's right. And, and then disseminating some of that information. So I just want to talk briefly about your, about your Ted talk, because there were some really important pieces in there. And I would love for you to just give a bit of a high level context and we'll kind of drill down, but some high level context into how you connected and associated um, trauma with some of the divide that we see in the United States right now. Oh, wow. So I didn't talk about this in the TED Talk. I'll probably do another TED Talk on this, but this will be good context. So there's a formula that I came up with. It's very simple to understand. It describes and explains every behavior. Very simple. So why does someone do that? Very simple. H plus E equals B. History plus environment equals behavior. Mm. Okay. So whatever happened in your history 
And whatever's going on in your current environment will produce the behavior that you're witnessing with somebody. And so when you look at the history of America, the Civil War ended how long ago, right? Yet we still have crazy. I mean, think about, th- think about this, okay? Nazi Germany, which killed millions of people, was only, you know, like not even 100 years ago, yeah. okay? And Germany has healed better and faster than we have with a racial wound that's hundreds of years old. Now, that is weird, if you ask me, mm-hmm. okay? Like, how is Germany some type of moral thought leader in the world today? And we're regressing, right? Like, that's mind-blowing to us. The only reason that's the case is because there's unaddressed trauma in our society that we will not talk about, right? And some of the, then so I talked about different types of trauma. There's like acute trauma, and that's like someone hit you, abuse, that type of stuff in the moment. There's like the stuff that represents and becomes like physical, uh, like, you know, I get hurt, I get, you know, my eyes are bleeding or I get punched. But then there's emotional trauma, which is sort of invisible wounding. And that can happen in interpersonal relationship dynamics. And that could be whether someone's emotionally isolated or not, physically isolated or not. It's not just the physical wounding stuff. And everyone has some degree of trauma, whether they know it or not, uh, because of that type of stuff. It's a dis- Trauma is really just a disconnection from emotional, physical safety. That's mm-hmm. all it is. So if you don't feel safe, that's a traumatic event. Um, and so if you look at the world today, there's just a bunch of trauma we have not discussed on like a very systemic level. So we have institutional racism. We have institutional patriarchy. that's toxic. And that's not just men. Mm-hmm. It's just a patriarchal system. Um, we have institutional. Uh, we're, we're becoming, again, an oligarchy. Like, you know, we rebelled against the oligarchy in, you know, Britain. I mean, the, we're becoming yeah, the, the oligarchy. The whole, the whole point right? of the United States, the United <laughs> States of America yeah. was to break away from the colonization that, that Britain was actually uh, sort of embarking on globally. That's right. And be able to have the, you know, our, 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 I'm not American, I'm Canadian, but have our own. We're all American. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Uh, <laughs> but like have our own uh, a country and, and rules and, and. Uh, break break free from that. So that's right. sorry, keep going. Well, no, but it's true. So and then we have you know uh, institutional. Uh, you know, we're looking at what's happening with uh, the prison population, right? All these things are producing trauma. Look at the incredible amount of trauma that's being produced at the border with children being separated from their families. That is the very definition of trauma. That's why it's so primal for people. Yeah. So this is what's happening, and it's the sort of elephant in the room. And I think one of the biggest problems is that people we live in a society that denies it. We deny trauma because we think it has to be physical only if you have a bruise and you're traumatized but if you have a you know a depression oh that's a brain disorder yeah that's a chemical imbalance no 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 that's a interpersonal traumatic experience and so what i laid out was all the data on that why that's the case and then what we can do to be uh sort of overcome it and it's interesting because i'm a six foot five white guy from kansas grew up in the upper middle class i grew up with white privilege white male privilege it's like super i'm the luckiest of so many people you know uh, because i have that you too um, and I also laid out the, the case for, um, this idea that even though that's the case for me, here's how we can heal this. And there's three phases to healing trauma. One is acknowledging it, mm. right? So the first word, we deny trauma. So we have to first acknowledge it. Then we have to start to do the, the work to heal it. Um, and then the third part is we have to transcend it. Mm. And when you transcend trauma and you stop that pattern in your life and in the life of people around you, you become what's called a transitional character, which is someone who can end the whole lineage of trauma being passed down from one generation to another in one lifetime. Hmm. And I think that's a really awesome call to action for people. And if you think about what people are proud of, first to go to college uh, in their family, maybe first to get a house, first to start a business, all incredible milestones. First to end the traumatic cycle in your right. family. Whoa. Yeah. Right. 
way harder too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, I would agree with that. I think, like, you know, I, I look at the people that uh, not, not to take anything away from the college degrees and university degrees that are out there. Um, but I think we can all acknowledge how challenging it actually is to end the patterns that have been in our family oh. for so long. And in the, the challenging part is that when you look at the, you only look at family systems, oftentimes there's like a pride of handing some of those things down. It's like, oh, well, you know, grandpa was an alcoholic and I guess I just carried it on, you know? And you kind of like hear that type of language from, from parents, right? You hear it from parents or uncles or whatever. And that becomes sort of like the part of like the beliefs, yeah. like the belief set of your family system. You know, it's like if your family system was a, a corporation that had that belief, if you went to work with somebody that had that belief, you'd probably challenge it. But in our family, it's a little bit different. Oh, it's so hard. And <laughs> so- Okay, really quickly, what do you see as some of like the systemic trauma that we have in the States? Because like, I think for a lot of people, it's very challenging for them to understand the huge divides that are happening right now. It just seems like a lot of hate. And I guess my first question is, does trauma usually elicit that response? Well, so if we look at it from like a traumatic response perspective, right? So you could classify something as love or hate. It's really defensive behavior, right? It's something that is people are on defense. And the reason why you're on defense is because you feel threatened. Okay. Whether or not the threat is real is a different question, right? But when someone lashes out with hate, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is they're defending their life, mm. right? So it just depends on your perspective, right? So I'll, I'll give you an example, okay? A small band of rebels band together to destroy an imperial force. Am I talking about Star Wars or Al-Qaeda? Mm. Okay. It just yeah. depends on your perspective, right? Yeah. Because there's lots of reports of like the Al-Qaeda. By the way, I'm not justifying it. Yeah. Okay. But what I'm saying is from the perspective of Al-Qaeda, America is the umpire. Yeah. From their perspective. Now, it's not okay that they can do what they did. Unacceptable. But it's all context, right? So from one perspective, someone's hating you. From another perspective, you're defending yourself, right? So the first thing we have to realize is, is that people on the defense and they're scared and they're triggered. When you're scared and triggered and you're like really passionate in that way, your whole prefrontal cortex is offline. Hmm. You're operating from your limbic system. You're operating from your reptilian brain. And you're kind of just on, on, like, on just automatic pilot, right? So the first thing we have to do is, for people who are starting to wake up to this, is even if you can't stand somebody empathize with them and go, are you scared? What's going on here? Right? Like trying to understand what's going on from that person's perspective without necessarily agreeing with them. Just understanding their context is such an important first step to be able to kind of unwind what we're seeing. Because what we have right now is you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. That will get nowhere. Yeah. Because what I know from working with so many people is that from a person's perspective, even if it's wrong, illegal, and bad, from their perspective, it's true. Yeah. From the, doesn't mean it's okay, but when we can tap into that, that's when we start to really understand what's going on. So, for example, there is systemic racism in this country. It is so obvious that that's still the case. Okay. There is systemic misogyny in this country still. Okay. In fact, I think misogyny is worse than racism. I'll tell you why. We elected a black president already. So like that tells you something, but look at the fight, look at the divide that happened last election, even though the uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, right? 
by a lot. You know, the Electoral College is what it is. That's why Trump won. But look at how passionate people were about not electing a woman. It is crazy. Okay. Now that stems back many generations, like talking about the origin. We can talk about the origin of misogyny if you want. But there is a fear from a lot of men and women who benefit from the proximal power of those men hmm. that when if women are empowered, all kinds of things are going to go wrong. And if you think about why that is and why people try to reduce like women's anger as an example, women's anger is one of the most powerful forces in the world. Women are one of the most powerful forces in the world because we all came from one. Yeah. Right. So there's this deep seated fear, which is not true. And it's not something I agree with, but we have to acknowledge it that if women come into power, men will not have any. Now, that's not the case, but that's what's underneath a lot of this. If black people or if minorities come into power or gays come into power, then certain other people won't have any. It's a very us versus them mindset. Versus realizing, hey, guys, let's take a cue from nature. Biodiversity, when, a, when an ecosystem is diverse, it's the strongest and most resilient, mm. right? And so, like, what's up right now is understanding that, you know, there's certain people who have been in power for a long time. They've killed a lot of people. I mean, there's, like, if you look at, like, white patriarchy and, like, what it's done and how much trauma it's caused over generations, it's time to give up some power and to recognize that we all are one, just like our constitution and Bibles and whatever say, right? And actually embody that. But the reason why we're not is because it's terrifying yeah. for certain people. I don't care. I don't care. I mean, like, it's, certain people are terrified by it. It's it's interesting, right? Because I think what you're saying for certain people be triggering and for other people are like, yeah, I can see how this is totally true. I, w I do want to talk about the origins of misogyny a little bit more because I think that that's a really interesting topic. And I don't know if I've necessarily dug into that on this show before. So, oh, it's such an interesting topic. Yeah. So, so tell me about that just a little bit. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so, so um, Christianity is, is a big player in it. And um, here's why. There's a, so let me quote my sources first. Okay. So I'm not just like making some shit up. Uh, there's an incredible book by Harvard researcher named Elaine Pagels called The Gnostic Gospels. She basically really studied like the Dead Sea Scrolls that came out and all of the different gospels that were found, you know, in the 1900s. Okay. So many, many years after all the Bibles had been written and, and distributed 2000 years later. And what Pagels found as a researcher, if you think about it for a second, right? 12 disciples, four gospels, you know. Eight missing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. There's, there's some basic, there's some literature missing. Basic math, right? Yeah. So you know, if you, if I, if I started with twelve million dollars, and then someone gave me back four million dollars, I'd be like, where's the eight, right? Like, I want to know where that is, right? I want to do an audit, if you will. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and and you know, we have the Gospel of Thomas, you have the Gospel of Judas, right? I mean, incredible stuff. And the thing about these gospels and these these uh, these scrolls is that they weren't edited by politicians. So if you look at like the current Bible and how it came to be. You had, you know, um, you know, all the different disciples writing down the scrolls and stuff like that. And then afterwards, you know, Jesus came around and caused the, he, he, he caused mayhem yeah. in terms of social uprising. Okay. He, he was not, well, I mean, obviously he was not well liked by a whole bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. There was, obviously, there was, a, there was right? a few people that were not Jesus fans <laughs> yeah. back, back in the yeah. day. Obviously. Okay. However, what happened was, is that now there's the Christians in context, right? There's the Christians, there's the pagans, there's the Jews. And they're like all in dissent right now. So this is not good for the Roman Empire. So Constantine called uh, two councils of Nicaea. And what they basically did was they lined up everything to like make it all kind of work together. So that's mm -hmm. why like Passover and Easter and like the eclipse or solstice or whatever is on the yeah. same time. Yeah. Or like 
you know, you have Christmas and the same thing, right? Solstice and Hanukkah, same time, right? There's a reason because that was set up by Rome and the Council of Nicaea and Constantine to like calm everybody down so that it was like, you know, we could get along. Okay. Part of what they did too was they decided what's going to go in and what's going to go out of the Bible. So imagine Congress, right? And the president saying, okay, this is what's going to go in out of the Bible. Here's what Jesus said. And we'll kind of just take this part out. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's what they did. So they heavily edited the Bible and got that kind of approval. And then it's been, you know, translated into multiple different languages, whatever. So what Pagos found in the original scrolls was, and, the, and the, a great read is the Gospel of Thomas. It's an incredible read. What she found was, is that, believe it or not, Jesus's true confidant was actually Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. So the stuff he would tell the disciples was kind of like 101 or 102 information in terms of what he would share. But like the real like spiritual stuff and the real like deeper stuff, he would only confide in Mary. Mm. Okay. In fact, what Pagos found is not only that, Jesus intended to pass the church to Mary hmm. instead of to Peter and to the disciples because he trusted her. So this is completely counter to the whole Christian patriarchal narrative. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can just hear people like, what? It's, this is just history. This is not like a conspiracy theory. This is not like, this is like, this is like out of Harvard. Okay. I, I love that we have to preface. This is not a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, it's theory. not, it's not, it's not fake news. Okay. This is not fake news. It's just Harvard data. Okay. Yeah. So like Harvard knows what's up. So, so anyway, so what happened was basically is that Peter was very jealous of this. And so when Jesus died and did all that, he basically took the church from Mary and Mary was cast out. And so like, that was not the original intention. So right there, you have one of the origins of misogyny right there where women were made wrong and that carried into if you look at the a lot of the christian christian traditions you know um there's this sort of casting out or pushing down of women it starts with peter and then it goes from there and so that is one of the major origins of misogyny and then you follow that through to you know all this stuff being vetted by the government essentially who certainly are a bunch of patriarchal guys right yes so so you have this like multi you know, century building of essentially this watering down of the original message used for money, power, and control. Mm. And meanwhile, like it was never supposed to be theirs in the first place, right? Well, shocking. It's, it's interesting to see how the translations of the Bibles have changed over time. Like there's uh, a great former pastor, pastor named uh, Rob Bell or Robert oh, yeah. Bell. And in one of his books, I think it's called Love wins. Yeah. That and was a very divisive book, by the way. Yeah. Really, really <laughs> interesting. But he, like he goes through and, and if you go back, he goes through and he looks at all the different points at which Jesus, you know, is, is supposedly refers to like hell, for example. And when Jesus refers to hell, he refers to a physical location, a valley outside of Jerusalem. But when you look at, when you look at the Bible today, it is sort of scripted as more of like a metaphysical place and less of an actual uh, physical place. And so it's interesting to see how the Bible has shifted and changed over the years. And so tell me a little bit more about why, maybe not why that's happened, but like, oh. how has that, how has that evolved? So, okay, great question. And this is a, okay. History lesson. Okay. History. The majority of the Christian doctrine, especially the evangelical Christian doctrine, comes from the writings of Paul, right? So Galatians and Corinthians and um, <laughs> Revelations, right? And, and here's the thing about Paul, okay? People like 
praise Paul like he's this like next level guy. Yeah. Maybe. But if you look at Paul's history, first of all, Paul was not a disciple. And Paul never met the living Jesus. Yeah. Now it's written that he met he had a spiritual encounter with Jesus. Okay. Um, but he never met the living Jesus. Beyond that, before Paul was a uh, gospel author, he was a murderer. Okay. So just, just hang out for a second. Okay. So, <laughs> so what we're saying is like, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, right? And John. Okay. And then you have all like a bunch of writings from Paul. Okay. And, and that guy, a mur- murdering person who had a psychosis event, who met Jesus in quotes, okay, is informing us that, you know, being gay is a sin yeah. and that all the fire and brimstone stuff, right? And I think personally, Paul was gay. And I think he was kind of repressing his own internal stuff. And I think especially Revelations is like him documenting his own psychotic break. Well, right? Paul, but it's not gospel. The gospel is the red letters, which is what Jesus said. Yeah. Not some guy who was a murderer who never met him. Yeah. I think I read somewhere that Paul also uh, was never married, had never like had sort of renounced women. And so he was a, a more sort of zealous figure that very much believed in renouncing women and sort of pushing them out. And I think that was part of the reason why the that part, there was many, many other reasons, but part of the reason why the Christian church um, made it so that priests and pastors couldn't take a wife. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, if you look at, if you look at like um, anyone in power, like you can quote things to any certain way to like make it right for you. So, you know, it starts with Peter kind of taking the church from Mary but then, you know, with the writings of Paul really gets exacerbated. Now, Paul wrote some really woke stuff too, hmm. but there's a bunch of stuff in like Corinthians, Galatians, certainly Revelation. When you read Revelations, it's like a nightmare, right? <laughs> it's awful, right? Um, like that's not what Jesus said. Hmm. Jesus was super clear in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, you know, basically love God with all your heart, mind, and soul above all else and love your neighbor as yourself, period, end of story. And that was the bottom line for him. He never talked about gay marriage. He never talked about any of that type of stuff. And also, if you look at the writings in the Gospel of Thomas, he's so clear that the relationship with a creator, whatever you want to think about it, is an internal personal experience. Yeah, It's not something you abdicate out externally. And he certainly was not for this Catholic interpretation where you need a middleman between you and God. No way. He was always about a living relationship with the creator within. And even in the Bible as it's written now, even the least among you can do greater things than I, and the kingdom of heaven is within you. Like those are in there, but they don't get highlighted. Yeah. Yeah. They, they seem to get passed over, which is quite, no pun intended, passed over, but they seem to yeah. get, they yeah. seem to get, they seem to get glossed over, which is very interesting. And then you have still to this day, huge amounts of evangelical Christians that, that, and, and this isn't to knock, like I'm not trying to. Oh, there's something to be to, knocked. To knock, but yeah. There are some that need to be knocked. But, it, but it, <laughs> I will knock. It, it is, <laughs> what is interesting to me, and hopefully I'm not veering this too far off topic, but when you look at some of the movements that are happening today that seem a little further out there, like the flat earth movement, and I don't want to get into like the anti-vax talk, like talk but, but specifically the flat earth movement, the majority of those people, they believe one uh, phrase in the Bible where it talks about um, it, it talks about the earth not being flat, but of a certain plane. And they've taken that and sort of turned it into believing that the earth is flat and, and just disavowing anything else. 
So why, why do you think that we have created or that people at some point in time created this separation between allowing God, allowing um, source, the universe, whatever, whatever verb, word, noun, whatever you want to call it, from being within us to being outside of us? Well, it's revolutionary, right? I mean, like the idea that I mean, even today, okay, the idea that God is within you, there's no place God is not. And you have a personal relationship and it's about a living experience and that even the least among you can do greater things than Jesus, which is some people think that's blasphemous, but he said it, yeah. right? That's a revolutionary idea. Because if you think about the way most people are taught, they're taught, oh, we'll handle this mm -hmm. and you have to come to us, right? Oh, by the way, I mean, if you think about like certain perspective of the Bible, it's basically it's long. The Bible is like a long form sales page whose message is tithe 10% and you'll be saved. Yeah. Basically, that's the bottom line that the churches have tried to get it to go. You know, Jesus was born. Jesus was born in a manger, not at the Vatican, yeah. with their massive buildings and coffers and stuff like that. So it's it's skewed because money, power, prestige, control, right? And so this idea that you know the power is out there, not in here, is something that you know has been used to oppress people for a long period of time. Yeah, it creates a dependency, right? That's it's right. Like you need us for God. That's right. You can't exist. You can't commune with God. Without us. That's right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So it's, it's more of like a, like a, um, it's like a power grab. Yeah. So coming back to today, how do you see, how do you see those? I know we're skipping a, like 2000 years worth of, yeah. worth of content, <laughs> but coming back to what we see in the world today and the segregation and the division between people and, and, and some of the misogyny that, that we originally talked about, cause we were talking about the origins of misogyny, which is really incredible. How have you seen? How have you seen that play into today's culture? Oh well, there's like the there's the like the there's the perpetuation of it, but then there's the resistance against it, right? So like the last election cycle, you saw so many women get elected. It's amazing, Republicans and Democrats, awesome, right? Um, so that's huge. Um, and what you're seeing though is, I think that the more that that's happening, the people who have been holding on to power for so long, which is generational, right, multi generational. Um, you know, there's a lot of fear. Yeah. There's a lot of fear about that. Um, and if we talk about the church, for an example, you know, anyone who's spewing xenophobia, fear, uh, hatred, division is not Christian. Yeah. They're not. They might use Jesus's name, but that's not Christ-like whatsoever. And a great example of that recently was uh, Franklin Graham, who was the a son of uh, the late Billy Graham. And Franklin Graham made a comment about Pete Buttigieg's, uh, you know, being gay and stuff like that as a sin. And it's just like, have you even read the Bible, man? You know, like, or you just, you're obviously just playing your base. Where in the world did like the hateful right get ownership over the name Jesus, yeah. right? Like Jesus would be hanging out on the steps of the Supreme Court during the LGBT marching, like saying, this is what we got to do. That's what he was always for. Yeah. And so, you know, um, you know, I think quoting Paul to justify Jesus is just all kinds of backwards. Um, but you know, there's a lot of amazing, loving people too, but that evangelical hateful base is the furthest thing from Christian that there is, even if they call themselves that yeah. they wouldn't recognize Jesus if he came back today one bit. I had this, <laughs> I, I had this argument. I've had this argument, not maybe not argument, this conversation with quite a few people, because there seems to be the religion that is about Christ that people wrote about Jesus. And then there is actually the religion from Christ. Yeah. And those two things are fundamentally different. 
right? Like what Jesus actually advocated for is what you spoke about before, right? Love God first, love thy neighbor as you would want to be treated, like very simple but profound um, ways of being from which we can live. And uh, last year, a few of my a few of my friends in this, I've never talked about this in the podcast, but I had these four, uh, I had four nights back to back where I had dreams where I was in conversations with Christ. And oh, wow. we were like sitting there having conversation. And at first he didn't know that he was Jesus because he had all this childhood trauma. <laughs> and he had grown up in this home where his father had abused him. And he had like a, you know, very enmeshed relationship with his mom and this like whole thing. And it was very interesting to see how it, uh, you know, unraveled him. Blah, blah, blah. And I won't get into the whole thing, but I remember having this conversation with someone and they were like, well, that couldn't have been Christ because he would have known. And, and that's not, that's not Jesus because Jesus never carried sin, never was lost, never was like all these things. Jesus was this perfect being. And it was so interesting because my question back was, if I was Christ, if I was Jesus right now, how would you know? Like, how would you not, how would you be able to disprove that somebody has reincarnated as Christ? How would you not know? And it was just so interesting to have that dialogue because it stirred up so much like hatred and vitriol and like anger from this other person to think that there was a different version of Christ than what they believed in. Well, the reason why that is is because and I stopped debating people on their faith if they weren't interested in it. Like I went, I, went, I used to like seek it out. And what I realized was, is that like, you know, someone's faith is important because that's their certainty. Yes. And if you mess with their certainty, I mean, there's a whole bunch of psychological constructs that can be sort of not go well after that, right? Because this is how it's supposed to be. And if you mess with, this is how it's supposed to be, you know, yeah, you're going to get all kinds of, you know, survival responses. So looping back into trauma, <laughs> yeah. because what I realized when I poked a little bit further into this person was that their religious fundamentalism was holding up their basically their entire life because of things that had happened in their past and they needed to have this certainty. So how does certainty play into trauma? And and do people that have had traumatic events in their pasts generally need some form of a certainty in their presence or in their present moment or in their future lives to, to try and hold on to? It's a great question. I'm going to transport a word. Yeah. So I'll take out the word certainty. I'll put in the word safety. Hmm. Safety is how trauma is healed, right? So maybe you can biohack it for sure. Um, but like trauma hacking is more and more and more about interpersonal relationships, right? Because generally trauma is created because of an interpersonal relationship and that's how it's healed too, right? So when you look at uh, why does one person go through a traumatic event and come out with PTSD and why does one person go through the same thing, come out with post-traumatic growth, Right. It's the amount of interpersonal resilience they have going into it, how much safety and security they have already. Then afterwards, did they uh, isolate? Were they shamed? Were they disbelieved? Mm. Or were they loved and had empathy and did they have you know, the empathetic witness, right? So someone who goes through a traumatic event who later can share it with somebody else, not be judged, be loved through that process, they're going to experience post-traumatic growth. Right. Someone who's disbelieved, who's exposed, who's judged, who's shamed, all that type of stuff. Of course, they're going to have PTSD. Yeah. So, you know, it's all stems back to most importantly, interpersonal dynamics and trauma is healed through safe relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Without a safe relationship, without a safe environment, you're not going to get there. And one of the things that I think is mis 
I don't know if misunderstood is the right word, but mis- it is missed. Like, we don't see this. People talk sometimes about Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning in Auschwitz. What a horrible thing to go through. And they decide, like, oh, it's meaning. What does this mean? And that's super important. Like, yes, you have to control your context and decide what it's going to mean. But the piece that they didn't talk about is they got through it together. It wasn't they – were they weren't isolated. They were together. They were co-regulating it as a group of people sharing their suffering and that was also a very powerful piece of why they were able to get through such a horrible experience is that co-regulation. So that interpersonal co-regulation is so important. Interesting. So I think that kind of brings up the question of lots of people have suffered through different types of trauma and oftentimes people can find themselves in a relationship with other people <laughs> that have had trauma in their past. Oh yeah. And I think it's it's you know it, it can be a beautiful gift to help them you know, move through it or to be a part of that. And, and as you're saying, be the sort of community that's around them. But how does one start, even start to support someone who's had trauma in their past and is now looking to heal through it? Yeah. Because I've had this question all the time from guys of like, you know, they'll come and work at a men's weekend and they're like, oh, you know what? Like my wife was, you know, raped in her past and it comes up sometimes and I'm not too sure how to support her. Or there was sexual abuse or she, you know, physical abuse or I've physically abused and my wife wants to know how to support me and I don't know what to tell her. Yeah. So the guys aren't going to like the answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you have to stop trying to fix it mm. because that's, the, that's one of the problems. Because like when you try to fix something, like from the guy's perspective, usually it's like, I just want to help. But from someone who's in pain or whatever, like the thing that's most important is um, what's called emotional attunement. So when you're trying to fix someone, you're trying to calm yourself down. Mm. If I fix it, then I'll feel better. But if someone's you know, expressing to you sadness, depression, isolation, suicidal thoughts, the self-disclosing, a traumatic event in their history, and you try to fix it, you have completely negated where they are and tried to move them forward with your own agenda versus being emotionally attuned with them, picking up on their facial expression, their tone of voice. And the first thing you say to somebody who's like shared with you something like that is, thanks for telling me. Mm. Um, so I feel so blessed that you feel safe enough to tell me that. You know, uh, uh, a son goes to a mother and says, mom, I want to kill myself. Well, mom's going to freak out, right? Unless she's trauma informed and she goes, honey, thanks for telling me that. I'm so happy you feel safe enough. That right there can just completely interrupt the pattern because you meet them where they are, whether it's, you know, autism, ADHD, trauma, what people are realizing is when you can go into somebody else's world and meet them there, that is so healing for people. So the first thing you want to say to someone is you want to empathize with them. And there's this thing called dismissive positivity. And dismissive positivity is when, you know, someone comes to you and they're not feeling well and then, you know, something happened. You go, oh, just cheer up. You'll be fine. (laughs) Right? Like, no, like, no, 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 no. Right? And I'm the king of dismissive positivity. I'm like, oh, there's a word for it. That's what that is. And I realized like, oh, I had to sit here and actually empathize. That's hard for me because I don't like to be in that pain for too long. I like to get out of it. Right? But that's my work. So the more that you can mirror and match and be with someone and be emotionally attuned with them, that's going to go so far. Um, when you look at the great, you know, therapists and, and practitioners in the world, whether it's, you know, Milton Erickson, Virginia Satir, Fritz Perls, Tony Robbins, I mean, all these amazing practitioners, like they're able to be emotionally in tune with whoever they're with. And that's the healing. Yeah, it, It's not really like the NLP process or the mirroring and pacing and matching and rapport building. That's important stuff. But if you can be emotionally in tune with somebody, that's the name of the game right there. It's connections, what it is. So people should learn how to actually connect. Yeah. I mean, like <laughs> everything is about interpersonal dynamics. Yeah. If I can track with you and I can tell like, oh, you're not in a good state, hmm. 
and I know that I'm not supposed to fix you and that I could just empathize with you. Whoa, that goes so far, yeah. right? Like most of us, especially entrepreneurs, you know, no one in our childhood was really taking care of us for whatever reason. So we became what's called a parentified child where we had to become the caretaker, right? And we're not used to someone reaching for us, right? So that's the other thing is reaching for somebody. Oh my God, so powerful. Yeah. Right. And these are not like fancy schmancy biohacks or whatever, but they are because reaching for someone, like the signal that sends to the nervous system is when I cry out, someone will be there. Mm. That's an incredible biohack. Yeah. Most of us didn't have that growing up. Right. Can you define or, or give just a little bit more context to reaching out so that people understand how they can start to implement that? So, yeah. So uh, we're going to take a little turn uh, into attachment theory, which yeah. is not attachment parenting. That's different. Attachment theory came from John Bowlby, um, and many people have taken it and run with it now. It's a really important uh, thing to understand if you want to be a good human being. But basically what Bowlby found out was he was a child psychiatrist in World War II. And what he found out was that the way we form emotional and physical and psychological bonds determines how healthy we're going to be or not. And so he would see these kids in World War II. Some of them were thriving. Some of them weren't. And he all learned it was about this thing called attachment. And so an attachment... There's, uh, you have the ARE, right? Uh, attentive, responsive, engaged. So when you have a kid who's crying out, the goal is to go there and to go comfort them, especially before the age of two, because they can't self-regulate yet. They don't have the wiring for that. So that's why like any biochemically healthy like woman, when she hears like a young child screaming out, wants to go comfort them. Mm -hmm. Because we know like deep, deep, deep down, that child cannot calm itself down. So a child is dependent upon usually a mother, a back to that diffused awareness, women have a lot better ability to like pick up on nonverbal cues than men. Right. And so like, usually it's the woman who's going to be in proximity and calm the child down. If that doesn't happen, the message you get to your nervous system is my needs aren't going to get met. Hmm. That's the beginning of unworthiness. When I cry out, nobody's there. I make it about me as a young kid. And so like reaching means like checking in. How are you? Are you okay? Reaching could be sitting with someone in, when they're depressed. Reaching could be for me, you know, sometimes my, my girl and I joke sometimes, but you know, when you like turn away from somebody and like you break eye contact, if it's like the person you love most, it's kind of painful sometimes, even if they're just going to the bathroom. Yeah. So like sometimes I'll walk backwards into the kitchen, right? Or Jenna will walk backwards into the kitchen so we don't break eye contact, huh. right? So that we're like still like tracking with each other. Cause there's something about like that warm presence, that face, that like signals of safety on a face that really can calm somebody down. Those are the things that require, you know, some reaching. It, it's not like, well, if they love me, they'll come to me. No, like you can reach for them too. And the thing is, is that you want to reach for people when they're not reachable. Mm. That's the hard time, right? Repairing is so important. Like after a, a fight in a relationship, you're going to have a fight. It's just you, you, probably lots of fights, right? Depending on what's going on and the stressors. So the goal isn't to not fight. The goal is to have a really good repair strategy, right? And one of the things that I do is, I hate admitting when I'm wrong. It's so hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. It's like still hard. Okay. So like what I'll, what I'll do is uh, if I get like upset or whatever, the first thing I realize is when I get triggered, my prefrontal cortex offline, I'll say to Jenna something like, Hey, uh, nobody's flying the plane right now. Yeah. Right. And I'll just got to go gather myself. I got to go regulate. I'll be back. And then however long that takes, it could be 20 minutes or a couple hours or whatever. I'll come back and my ego is still there trying to defend me. But I'll say something like this. And Jenna knows it's a repair signal, so it's it becomes a joke. Without that context, I sound like a jerk. <laughs> I'll say something like, um, hey, honey, um, so I accept your apology. 
Right. And uh, and she, you know, she's like, you fuck her, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's me sending a little bit of a white flag, basically like saying like, my ego's still here, but I'm trying to come back to you. Yeah. Right? And then when she's ready, she can maybe crack a joke or do something to me and then she'll kind of wave the flag back to me and then we can find our way back to each other. Yeah. And it's really important to not judge someone's a repair attempt because they're not going to do it right. Right? But you want to make sure that you have an ability to repair too. And that's, a, that's, a, that's another way to reach for somebody. Say, hey, let's make this right. Yeah. Vienna will usually try and get me to laugh because she has this innate ability to make me laugh so no matter good. what. It's so annoying. But it's, it's good, so though. annoying because I'm like, fuck, I just want to be so goddamn mad at you right now. Like, I just want to be fucking mad at you. And 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 sometimes, sometimes she'll try and, and, and uh, you know, like when she's trying to repair, right? That's, yeah. usually, that's usually the signal, right? That she's trying to make me laugh. She's doing something goofy. Uh, and it's so funny because I'm... I'm the opposite. I'm usually okay with admitting that I'm wrong, but where I get stuck is when I am right. <laughs> then I jackhammer. She calls it the jackhammer. And that's that's like the sign, right? She'd be like, you're jackhammering. Like, I got it. I understand. And so then I have to like go take my few yeah. minutes, breathe, come back, <laughs> yeah. and then and then repair. So that's awesome. But by the way, humor and play yeah. are the physiological opposite of trauma. Hmm. So when you're laughing and playing with somebody, all the biochemistry is basically the opposite of a traumatizing event. So, so literally like play is one of the most healing things you can do. So she's a little brilliant there. She, well, she <laughs> does, she doesn't know her stuff. Um, I, I wanted to talk about uh, trauma and some of the alternative forms that are coming out. Some of the, uh, we'll call them alternative forms of healing, sure. psychedelics and whatnot. Um, but maybe we'll get there before we came online you uh, were talking about the walking i'm told oh, like the study yes. yeah so a study came out like q3 q4 2018 called the walking wounded yes and it was a uh, emerging stuff emerging practices for ptsd and veterans and i obsess over that topic because my father is a vietnam vet and so i'm always trying to figure out like what's going on yeah you know and yeah there's a lot of cool stuff in there yeah interesting so can you pull out maybe just one or two things because i think we've had a, a few people that tune into this that are, are vets and I've been on shows before uh, with veterans. And that's one of the big questions is like, you know, what do we need to know about yeah. PTSD? Okay. So if you're a veteran listening right now, first of all, thank you for your service. Yes. And if you were abroad, welcome home. Welcome back. Um, thank you for all that you've done. In terms of the study, what I would say is, is that, you know, the way that we've looked at PTSD and many, many different, you know, mental health disorders is it's a chemical imbalance, right? So this, this happened, you know, at first it was like, I don't know what's wrong. They're fucking crazy. Right. And then we started to realize like, oh, we could do like brain imaging and there's like, oh, there's like chemical, like they don't have this pathway or this part of the brain isn't working. Right. Yeah. And so like, that was a huge leap for mental health. Right. And like, you start looking at like the first like Prozac, you know, prescriptions, people went from like not having a functioning life whatsoever to like semi-normal. Yeah. So for like the 60s, 70s, and 80s of psychiatry, like people in 90s, people were like, whoa, this is powerful shit. And so it created this myth of the chemical imbalance in the brain mm. as a result of what the brain is doing. Okay. Now, is there a chemical imbalance? Sure. If you have high lipids, you have a lipid imbalance, right? So like all of our whole body is full of all kinds of biometrics that's always seeking homeostasis, right? But what we start to realize when we get into like understanding trauma-informed stuff is, is that affect, which is data from the body to the brain, emotional data could be the neurotransmitters from the gut to the brain, all the stuff that's going from the body to the brain, which by the way, 10 times more affect body to brain than effect brain to body. So there's 
way more stuff coming up than going down. Meaning that it's highly possible that our brains are a picture of our body. Yeah, and just and just to say one quick thing there that last time you and I jammed, we talked extensively about this. We talked yes. about the polyvagal theory. Um, we talked about the vagus nerve and the importance of that. So just if you're really interested in this conversation, definitely go back and listen to our last conversation. Yeah, yeah there's a lot there. And so so when you look at mental health now, the leap isn't just how do I, you know, fix my brain or my chemical imbalance. It's what's causing it. Yeah. Why is part of my medial lobe not working? Why do I not have a sense of self if I've experienced trauma? And there's all these amazing discoveries we're finding. But brain health is really body health in a lot of ways, right? And also somatic health in terms of how safe does your nervous system feel? And so what they're starting to realize in that context is, is that some of the best remedies for PTSD in this study. And there's another thing I can talk about in a second. I'm going to say it now so we can remember. The stellate ganglia block. I want to talk about that too. <laughs> the what? It's, yeah, it's called the stellate ganglia block or blockade. We'll talk about that Okay, too. okay. So, so in the walking wounded study, what they found was is they looked at like SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors and stuff like that. And they looked at like the effectiveness of what that does, right? And it, it's better than nothing, okay? Yeah. But what they're realizing is, is that they're getting incredible results with restoring and accessing endocannabinoid pathways. Mm. So like, you know, CBD and stuff like that. Um, opiate pathways, glutamate pathways, oxytocin pathways. Now, not opiates. So like, don't start taking Oxycontin or whatever, okay? But how do we access those pathways? And what happens is when you access and you're able to sort of re-engage the oxytocin pathway, bonding chemical, right? Uh, the endocannabinoid pathways, uh, opioid pathways, glutamate, all that type of stuff. I like to think of those pathways as the pathways of connection, mm. right? They restore connection. So oxytocin, like that's the stuff that like bonds a baby and their child, right? And we obviously understand what endocannabinoid is. We know what CBD is. We know what marijuana is. You know, I will say every time I go back to Los Angeles, since the, that became legal, people are so much nicer. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. It's like, a secret to Canadians, right? It's totally, fully, it's yeah, fully legal there, I right? It. I mean, it's. It's practically, I mean, that's that's recent. That's last year. Amazing. But I mean, in places like British Columbia, <laughs> yeah, it's, man. it's pretty much been legal for yeah. like decades. Yeah. Right? So like, so, but yeah, so we understand that, right? So what's interesting is, is that at this very same time I was reading the study, my father had come back from a psychiatrist and was prescribed Adderall at 70, which is crazy, plus an SSRI. And I said, hey, dad, let me just see those for a second. And I kind of ripped them up. And I said, you know, I just read this study. Let's try some CBD because he was, you know, dysregulated, insomnia, all kinds of stuff for many years. And that night he took some CBD. Like I think it was eight or nine hours of sleep. And it was hard to get him on a cycle for a while. But like four months later, eight or nine hours every night, which is crazy because he was getting one or two. Yeah, wow. And he was like up and down all day. He had like a 24-hour cycle. Different man. Like he talked about like the pain in his heart is now gone. And not like his like heart chest pain, just like emotional stuff. Yeah. And like, that's really powerful. So what's amazing is, is that we're seeing that these, you know, very like, you know, earthy of the ground type substances that we all come from, these sort of indigenous ideas, you know, the pathways are starting to become really clear that like this helps restore the body to whole health. And I fully believe if we get into more research on MDMA or psilocybin or ayahuasca or whatever, those plus other pathways are activated for sure. Well, I think the most fascinating thing, like I've kind of gone down this uh, <laughs> down this rabbit hole for the last couple of years, exploring you know CBD and THC and you know psychedelics and that kind of stuff. And it's been interesting to to as the research unfolds 
to kind of see that the body is actually set up to receive these uh, these chemical compounds, right? The fact that we have cannabinoid receptors in our brain is just, it's kind of mind-blowing, right? It's, uh, well, I mean, maybe not mind-blowing, but... <laughs> well, when they're activated, but, they're certainly mind-blowing. Yeah, but when they're activated, it's like, whoa! <laughs> you, you, you get to take a, a different rocket ship. So let's go down this, yeah. let's go down this pathway a little bit. Let's talk about using you know, MDMA or psilocybin from your understanding, why are some of these things as effective or, and sometimes more effective for, uh, traumatic treatments or for PTSD or anxiety or depression than the, you know, the, the crap that like the big pharma companies are putting out. So, um, so yeah, so everything I do is evidence-based and research-backed and best I can, um, plus some, some guesses. Uh, but you know, when you look at some of the drug names, right, antipsychotic as an example, right? I'd rather have a pro connector yeah. than an antipsychotic, right? Because psychosis is the response of trauma. So the more we can restore, uh, you know, the ability for one to regulate themselves, the better. Okay. So it's one thing to inhibit something. It's another thing to restore it. And so I think um, what we're seeing, for, oh, let me just say this too. All of it, whether it's, you know, your prescription medications or your ayahuasca or whatever, is all, think of it just like a supplement. So if you're going to go get in shape, okay, and you're going to go train, you still got to go to the gym. You still got to lift the weights. You still got to run. Supplements don't lift weights for you, okay? So I'm not for using these drugs as an escape. I'm going to go do the work and do ayahuasca every weekend for the rest of my life and do the work. No, right? Like that's not the goal. The goal is to have it be a part of supplementation for your practice and your healing process. Just like you would supplement you know, DHA or glutamine, if you want to, you know, get in shape or whatever, you know, amino acids, you know, Ben the Greenfield, the Kion amino acids or Kion amino acids, they're awesome. But Ben Greenfield still busts his ass and yeah. training all the time. <laughs> yes. Right? So like, and that's the thing about the trauma stuff is you still got to do your interpersonal work. You still got to do your attachment history stuff and you still then have to implement it. And the thing about trauma is that it's healed through reliving the emotional states and choosing differently. Yeah. Right. So you're going to have to relive some of those traumatic emotions in relationship. It's not going to go away. And trauma also is more like a virus than a bacteria, meaning it goes dormant. Mm. You can take an antibiotic and kill bacteria, but viruses, that's not how they work. They go dormant. And that's why Philip Seymour Hoffman can be you know sober for 20 years and then overdose. Right. Yeah. So it goes dormant. But when you restore pathways, when you restore connection, that's the process that's super healing. So, you know, if I can all of a sudden get like oxytocin, more oxytocin to my brain where that pathway wasn't there before, I'm going to feel better. If I can have more, you know, endocannabinoid receptors activated when I'm in a hyper aroused state, I will be down regulated. Mm. So like that makes a ton of sense, right? Because especially like the PTSD idea, and then we'll get to the spelled ganglia blockade in a second. When, when you look at PTSD, it's almost like the machinery breaks. And they can't downregulate anymore. Parts of the brain don't turn on anymore. They don't know how to inhibit each other anymore. The prefrontal cortex is like held hostage by the limbic system, which is the fight or flight response. So you have a hard time self-regulating. It's not the same. And like little tiny things can set you off now because if you have a trauma experience, that's how you need to be to survive. Mm. So sometimes it's not about holding things back. It's about restoring that connection. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of these are starting to do. And, you know, it's ancient traditions and wisdom too, yeah. but you got to do it in the context of therapy or healing, and you can't skip out on the interpersonal work. Yeah. You see people are trying to reduce the pain. 
we want to reduce suffering, but it will be painful to heal from trauma, just like it's painful to like wake up with lactic acid. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, like lactic acid, I can put pneumatic compression on and pump it out faster. It's still going to be there. Yeah. And I'm still going to do legs. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I, I love that. I, I love that caveat because I think there is this as, you know, as some of these alternative forms of medicine or healing or whatever you want to call them are starting to become much more prominent, there is this tendency to use those as the bypass, right? It's like a different form of spiritual bypassing. It's just like spiritual medicine bypassing. And it's not as integrated. So I love that you're talking about that. So going back to the ganglion. Oh, stellate ganglion lucate. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's touch on that. Okay. Tell us so, about that. So um, this is something I'm I'm going to I'm, I'm actually going to get one uh, in June or July. This is a serious medical procedure that has certain contraindications that you got to talk to a doctor about and don't fuck around on it. Okay. But, but, okay. So what we've, what we're learning is so that ganglia is a cluster of nerves. Okay. And there's the stellate ganglia is uh, down here sort of in the neck, like, I don't know, C6, C5, something like that. So what happens is basically like if you look at like the 10th cervical nerve, that's the vagus nerve. We talked about it. That's where all the sort of like dysregulated affect will come up from the body to the brain when you're really having a panic attack or whatever. It comes mm. there. What we're finding is, and again, this, if you go to like PubMed and you type in stellate ganglion blockade or stellate ganglion block, so many articles will come up on PTSD. Hmm. What we're learning is that there's some correlation between like that affect coming up from the nervous system and like that kind of like that, that like, it's almost like a switch, like a breaker that just is always on, right? The ganglion blockade is an analgesic and you get it injected in your neck and it basically just kind of turns the nerves off for a little bit. And when they turn back on, it's almost like that intensity is not there anymore. And so what they're, I'm not saying it gets rid of PTSD, but the results in the veterans they've done this work on are staggering in terms of reducing symptoms. Interesting. So, and so why are you going to get, get it done? Because I definitely have PTSD and I feel like I'm always on, like I'm, I'm like this always. Right. And I don't want to be all the time. Like it's very difficult for me to calm down whether or not I'm on Adderall doesn't matter. And so for me, I just want to like not always be like going a million miles an hour. I want to be able to be like, if I can turn that on, but not always be that way. Plus, I want to see what it's like because, you know, I may want to recommend it to my dad and some other people and stuff like that. And it's medically supervised. The best place to get one is the Cleveland Clinic. Hmm. Um, that You know, you know, just don't get like some like doctor of chiropractic to give you one for fuck's sake. Like you got to have like a someone who's an expert because like you can like poke yourself in the spinal cord. You can like hit the vagus nerve and like have a vasovagal syncope. There's all kinds of bad shit that can happen. Um, so you want to make sure it's like supervised, but the data is staggering on being, it's almost like a nervous system reset. Interesting. So the whole, the whole point of this procedure is that it will normally when, if you have PTSD or past trauma where that, uh, central nerve is constantly sending lots of, just lots of constant, like fight or flight, uh, information up to the brain and you're constantly just sort of like wired in that space on edge. Um, how else would you describe that? Just, on edge? I would call it uh, hyper aroused. Okay. Yeah. Hyper aroused. That's a good way of putting it. Um, it'll reset it. And then hopefully you have uh, a more calm, peaceful baseline. That's right. That you're operating. That, that's, that's what the research is showing. Interesting. Yeah. It's very promising PTSD treatment. Okay. So great. I'm glad we covered that. 
Let's talk quickly about things like psilocybin and DMT and the effects of those things on on trauma. So first and foremost, um, have you experimented with some of these things? Yes. Yeah, yes. Um, I've done ayahuasca two or three times. I don't know how many times I've done mushrooms. A lot. Definitely smoked a lot of pot in my day. Yeah. And I, I do supplement CBD daily now for sleep, which has been amazing uh, yeah. for me. And I have, so I have personal experience and there's like the data. Yes. So we can talk about Let's either. do both. Okay. Let's do, let's, let's do both. I think, you know, I've, uh, I've used weed, like I've used marijuana in very specific ways, done mushrooms, psilocybin, and like experimented with that quite a bit. There's some great playlists, the John Hopkins. Uh, there's three different playlists on Spotify. There's like the John Hopkins uh, psilocybin therapy. And it's actually the playlist oh, wow. that, that John Hopkins uses for their psilocybin trials. And oh, so when, wow. when people are actually going into being a part of like the research, they'll use these playlists and they are phenomenal. All right. They are absolutely phenomenal. Um, so I'm going to send those to you after. Maybe I'll link them in the show notes. Yeah. I'm sure I'm going to get lots of messages with from people. Okay, let's let's talk personal experience and then we'll mix in some data. Tell me tell me why. Like what's the curiosity for you because I think the biggest question that a lot of people have if they haven't done things like mushrooms outside of because most people have done mushrooms in like a party environment, right? They're like, "Oh yeah, like I did mushrooms when I was like 19 and I was at a party and it was okay." Or like it was horrendous because of course it was. You had a fucking party and you were high on mushrooms. Yeah. Which is like not the best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So like the first time I ever did something like that, I was probably 15 or something like that. And it was like I took ecstasy, uh, MDMA. Yep. And uh, I immediately ran home and told my parents I loved them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they were probably like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> I love you guys so much. You know, like, I don't know. You know, um, so like there's that. Like. What what drug makes you do that, right? Yeah, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, it's so. interesting because like a lot of the clinical trials for MDMA, like MDMA, I think is they're specifically trying to use it for severe depression. Oh yeah, like yeah, yeah. severe, yeah. severe depression. Yeah. And the results that are starting to come out are, are quite interesting. You know, lots of people that like literally haven't been leaving homes for yeah. months and months on oh, the, yeah. on end are now starting to be able to function properly again yeah it's, it's probably reactivating dorsal vagal function um that'd be my guess um interesting sorry this like, <laughs> neuroscience geek just popped out <laughs> of me right there yeah the dorsal vagal uh response is is part of the reason why people uh, shut down and isolate the vagus nerve obviously regulates that so um yeah that's really interesting so um yeah so so we can talk let's, we can talk some of the data but personal experience you know um i i can't i can't count on i have no idea how many times i've done mushrooms um, but I in, was in a specific setting, like in a specific environment, did no, you use them intentionally? So mostly always intentionally. I never was like the party guy yeah. with it. Like I would like, like, okay, here's an example. So one time I took a bunch of mushrooms. I was in my early twenties. I locked myself in my apartment for like three days. I was like, you are going to fucking figure some shit out about your life right now. And I'm like, and this is how you're going to do it. You're gonna take a ton of mushrooms and you're gonna watch the Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> I mean, that sounds amazing. Uh, that's what you're gonna do. Cause like there's some shit in there that you need to figure out, right? And I was going through this whole Joseph Campbell phase. Yeah, the whatever. hero's journey. Yeah. 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 So so then like I put like the first one in and like it didn't hit me very hard. So then I was like, I'll take more and I watched like Empire. And Ooh. right around like Luke's training sequence, it was like <laughs> right. And then like I'm sitting there like all watching it, like big eyed and shit. 
and like Yoda is like, don't take your weapons into the cave and stuff like that. Right, right. Like, does it and he goes in there. Like, oh man, he's like fighting the bad guy. And like, I forgot the storyline for a minute, you know, like, cause I was just so in it. And like, he cuts Vader's heads off and like rolls over and pops out. And it's Luke's face. I'm like, whoa. And I'm like freaking out. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. It's just my fear. You know, like it's my fear. It's not them. And it's just this big aha moment for me about like, I'm afraid of myself and all this type of stuff. That was very powerful, wow. right? Uh, super, super powerful. Now I wrote about that in Growing Into Grace. My publisher advised me to take out the part where I was high as fuck on mushrooms, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I might read that in a different context now. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so like there's been experiences like that. You know, there was one time uh, where I, I used to, I, I went to the first like 10 years of Coachella yeah. before it was what it is now. And like one time, uh, accidentally I took them mm. where I was like super hungry. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon. I was really drunk and I brought a candy bar. There's a mushroom candy bar and I forgot because I was really drunk and it was like two days in. And so I ate the whole fucking candy bar. Okay. Uh, now that was a funny experience because my friends were driving in. This Matas Yahoo was playing that year. He was like the Yiddish rapper. And like something happened where like I was like walking into Coachella and it like all hit me at once. And because like Matas Yahoo was playing and he was like Jewish, somehow I became in my own mind Moses. <laughs> awesome. And so I started yelling, come with me. I'll lead you to the promised land. You know, and people are like, okay. You know, like, it's really funny. Like, I don't know where, where the VIP is where the promised land is. You yeah, know? yeah. Like, so like there was some of that. That was funny. I actually had a job interview that night because I was interviewing to be a co-manager for Narls Barkley that, that night. <laughs> and I got the job, you know, which is pretty funny. I don't know how I did, got the job. Um, so like there was like that one time like that. But usually it's like trying to like lock myself in a room and figure some shit out. Um, is usually what I would do with it. Ayahuasca was ceremonial. So there were like, it was like an actual shaman yeah. who led them both times. My very first ayahuasca experience was extremely profound hmm. for me. I had a recall of like 10 or 15 people in my life that I had resentments towards. Yeah. And I experienced all of our major fights and falling outs from their perspective. Interesting. I felt their feelings. I saw how I was being. I saw why they felt that way, like that context. And it was like instant forgiveness. Wow. Instant. Like, of course you would have done that if you were you. And that's when I was like, hmm. That's when the sort of the idea of like, how do I get people into that state? You know? Yeah. Um, I also started to realize that, you know, people view all of life through a certain lens or filter or context. And a lot of that was like early seeding of like things that I would kind of put into my coaching that would then become functional life coaching. Right. Mm. So a lot of ways like functional life coaching started because of an ayahuasca trip. Amazing. And some of the, the distinctions I had made during that time of my own stuff, you know, I, I it was lots of different. I mean, I had some celestial experiences too, some like out of body stuff. Yeah. Uh, experiencing the universe is this kind of battle between light and trauma, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, this is very interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, it was it was it was intense to say the least. You it's know, so incredible. I have um, there's a, a retreat center in Rhythmia or, or in Costa Rica oh, yeah, called yeah. Rhythmia. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to be going there in, in July and having the guy on the show, the guy that started oh, yeah. it and like interviewing him and getting to like know his story and stuff like that. So that, that'll that be interesting. The thing about ayahuasca though is, so like it does have contraindications with certain prescription medications. So you got to yes. make sure that that's handled. And then you want to make sure wherever you're doing it is like a safe place because there have been people who have been like 
overdosed because they had prescription medication and like the shaman buried them and then tell me about it. Like there's scary yeah. stories too. Yeah. But if you can have a safe place, and by the way, ayahuasca is a, a mix of multiple different ingredients. So you want to make sure it's consistent. You know, you want to make sure it's a safe environment. It's not contraindication of any of the prescription medication or supplements that you're on. But if that's the case, it can be a very powerful experience. But for me, that was a while ago. Yeah. Over 10 years probably. And I'm still integrating it. Yeah. I'm not like, let me go do it again. Yeah. I'm still like, whoa, that I'm integrating into this physical corporal being and body and, and life. It's interesting. Like you're sharing your experience of uh, reliving those moments, those fights on ayahuasca with some of the people that we were in your life. My very first mushroom journey was on this, on this beach with a friend I went through and relived every major relationship that I had been in wow. and why, and, and why they had ended and, uh, felt a deeper sense of closure than I had ever oh, expected. So huge. It was such an interesting thing. And then I came and the interesting thing was that we were on this beach and I was right down by the water. And I started with my very first high school relationship, which was actually pretty traumatic because there was like a whole bunch of shit that went down. And as I walked back from the water to the bluff, I like relived and my feet were tracing in the sand like these symbols that the relationship symbolized, like mm. each relationship symbolized. And as I went through, I would like mark them off, you know, and like wipe out the symbol. And that was like symbolizing. Wow. And I, I was sort of like observing that all this was happening, right? And then I got back to the bluff and I was sitting there and I was reflecting on the relationship that I was in, realizing that that I had known for a few months that there, that I didn't want to be in that relationship and that I had known that. And I had known that I just hadn't allowed myself. I hadn't given myself permission to actually like, you know, really yeah. own it fully. And so it was this very interesting journey of reliving all of these huge moments in my life that, you know, some of them I hadn't found closure on in the way that I would have liked. And all of a sudden it was like forgiveness, let go of forgiveness, let go huge. of. And it was just like this incredible closing piece. Oh. Um, Hell yeah. so, so, so just a briefly psilocybin that's in, uh, mushrooms. Can you give some context to the listeners? What, maybe not like what psilocybin does, but why it's helpful and, and how, how it actually works. Like, I don't know if we need yeah, to go so into too much detail. About I just it. think, I think it all sort of bottom lines at like, I'll give an analogy. Yeah. Okay. So if somebody's hungry and they're starving to death, right? You can do all the data on. What's the percentage of deterioration? Like how long have they been in ketosis, right? Are they starting to like, like, are they starting to eat their own muscle now? Is their body can like, what's the deterioration rate? And you can understand all that, right? And you can do stuff to maybe slow that down. Or you just give them a meal, right? Just feed them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Right? And so like in the pathologizing world that we live in of mental health and healthcare, yes, we have to know what's wrong, right? And sometimes just giving someone what they need is the answer, right? So Maybe that's a hug. Maybe you have, you know, uh, polyvagal syndrome and parts of your brain are active and you're downregulated in your oxytocin. So it might be one thing to say, well, you have depression. It might be another thing to just say, here's what connection feels like again. Yeah. Right. So when you look at a lot of these sort of um, emerging medicines and uh, opportunities to heal, whether it's psilocybin or the others, what they do in the right context is restore connection. Mm. Right felt sense of it. It's it's one thing to kind of get an intellectual understanding of it, but when you actually feel connection, when you actually feel 
like having social engagement when you don't have hyper arousal or you know you're hyper vigilant and you just feel regulated people want that shit yeah. people it will be habit forming to be more connected so you know these are uh, ancient remedies to uh, predictable problems when someone's disconnected so it's not a matter of being against prescription medication and for this stuff to me it's all like a buffet of what's going to make the most sense for you yeah right and so at the end of the day it's about restoring that connection that's why it's so that that's why it works but it can also be an escape but prescription medication can also be an escape too right like oh well my you know uh, Paxil or whatever isn't working I still feel depressed well it's because you're in a soul-sucking job and you're in a relationship that you know you're not supposed to be in. Don't, don't blame the fucking drugs. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this is a good way of putting it. it it's, it's totally true. And I think, you know, we've we've touched on uh, a few things and, you know, specifically around specifically around psilocybin and, and ayahuasca. Um, I think the, the context that, that I just would want to give is, you know, I, I'll probably do a few more episodes on these just to unpack them so that people have a little bit more, a more like uh, understanding, but, you know, set and setting is so important. How you, how you do these is so important. You know, if you're thinking about going to do mushrooms or ayahuasca or anything, it should be in a, in a lead environment, right? Don't just like wander off. Well, there's into the uh, forest. <laughs> lots of therapists now that do MDMA assisted stuff or ketamine assisted stuff, you know, so like, that's where I'd probably start. And like, yeah. also like, please make sure that they are aware of whatever else you're taking. Yes. Right. Cause like, you know, you don't want to kill yourself accidentally. Right. And the other thing, I think we said this, I can't remember this off air, but you know, people talk about microdosing something. It's like, well, if you're on prescription medication, you're microdosing something. If you have your coffee in the morning, that's microdosing caffeine. Yep. Right. So, you know, like, sure, let's microdose things that help us stay connected. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think the chemical compound in psilocybin um, is dimethyltryptamine, which is DMT, which is the same chemical compound that's in ayahuasca. And your pineal gland in your brain actually produces dimethyltryptamine in very small, uh, very small amounts. So like the chemical compound that actually creates the trip, the journey, whatever word you want to use is, is a naturally produced chemical within your brain. Like it's, it's well, already yeah, in if, there. If we can't take stuff that we can't you know, you talked about the opiate receptor. Like yeah. if we don't have a receptor for it, then we can't, doesn't work on us. Yes. Right. So yes, hundred percent. One question that I, I don't have an answer to, yeah. but I have a theory of when I was like in those States and it's an interesting thing to ponder, right? Am I on a trip having hallucinations or am I somehow more open to what's always there, but I'm only seeing it from this state? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, is this how it always is? But maybe that's just not how I'm wired to perceive it through my five senses. Or am I tripping? I don't know. You know, but that's an interesting thing to think about. Is it a hallucination or am I more open to other experiences that are happening around us that we can't seem, you know? It's a good, uh, that's a good question to just leave, <laughs> leave people with at the end of this, uh, mass and listen, man, this has been amazing. And I love our chats. Uh, I feel yeah. like you should have like a fireside here. Totally. <laughs> I think, I think the message today is, uh, for God's sake, work on your trauma yeah. and trip. Yeah. <laughs> for God's sake. For yeah. Jesus Christ. You yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> So good, man. Uh, just really quickly, what? <laughs> what that's going to be like the the caption, you know, yeah. like when this comes out. <laughs> For God's sakes, work on your trauma 
and trip. And people are like, what? <laughs> What's still tripping about? <laughs> uh, what do you have up and coming that you're excited about? Yeah. So uh, we have uh, Claim Your Power Live coming up, which is our annual sort of trauma hacking event. And it's really for entrepreneurs and practitioners. It's not business strategies. So mm. we teach that stuff in a different program, but Clean Your Power Live is this stuff. Like what's the latest in the trauma world to help you get better results as a practitioner or entrepreneur? And uh, I'm super excited because one of the things that we're upgrading from last year, this year is there's been so much research coming out about how attachment theory is a predictive model for entrepreneurial success or failure. Mm. And there are specific and precise uh, ways to assess which attachment style are you and then based on that, what are the predictable blocks that you're going to have and the predictable remedies for that? So uh, along with a lot of other neuroscience that have been studying stuff like that in terms of what we'll be debuting there, we'll be talking a lot about that too. Um, we've been testing it with some of our high-end coaching people and clients, and it's been very well received and gotten some really great results. So we'll be bringing that to Claim Your Power Live. It's, uh, I don't know the exact dates, but it's end of July in Atlanta. ClaimYourPowerLive.com is where that is. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I know after... There will be no hallucinogens there, though. Yeah, there'll be no hallucinogens. Unfortunately or fortunately. <laughs> whichever whichever one. Uh, you know, after the last time you were on the show and uh, we talked about Claim Your Power, I've had a ton of people reach out and just say how much they loved your book. Oh, awesome. And so I just wanted to give you that because there has literally been so many men and women in our community that has just absolutely loved, loved, loved your book. And I've had a lot of people reach out and just be like, look, this book has changed my life. Thank you oh. so much for having on the show. Yeah. And so thank you so much for all the work That's that you're doing. Awesome. And for the people that are out there listening, if you haven't gone and checked out Claim Your, uh, Claim Your Power, definitely go do so now. I usually don't like openly promote books <laughs> on this show, as you probably know, uh, if you've been listening to this for a while. Um, but definitely go check out Madison's book. He's doing some incredible work in the world. And oh, brother, man, thank you so much. You are always, always welcome to the ah. show. And uh, maybe maybe next time we'll, we'll go on a deep dive about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, for everyone else that's out there listening, don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Subscribe on whatever platform you are listening to us on. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes. We're on all of the platforms. Uh, so hit us up. And don't forget to man it forward. Share this episode with just one person that you know could use the listen uh, for whatever part of this you absolutely love. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm -hmm.